If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be there in just a few moments. As we turn to God's Word, let's also turn to Him in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, our soul does indeed find rest in You alone. But Father, our souls are also restless, and I'm sure that's the case now for many of us. Would You then, through Your Word and by Your Spirit, give us a greater recognition that You indeed are our delight and our reward that you are everlasting, you are never failing, you are our Redeemer, our God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we started the mini-series last week and we finish it this week. Um, we are headed uh, next Sunday to begin a series, Christian, What Do You Believe? We're going to be looking at the Apostles' But today we are still in the banners of truth. Here to my right and to my left are these banners. And what are they presenting or representing? Well, biblical truth. Just as I mentioned last week, there's an organization out of the United Kingdom that's there for the advancement and dissemination of the knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith. And it's entitled, the name of the organization is the Banner of Truth Trust. Last week, we saw that grace has appeared from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We first took a look at why grace matters. Then we looked at what grace does. Grace saves. Grace trains. Grace orients. We looked at who grace is and how grace works. Well, today we move on to the second message, peace has arrived. Grace and peace, it's how Paul starts and finishes his letters. Ephesians in particular, it's the bookends. It starts with grace and peace and ends with peace and grace. It's really balanced in that sense. So the name of our church serves both as an anchor that holds us to the historic Christian faith, as well as an engine that drives the church forward in ministry. And as I mentioned last week, if you think about the terms grace and peace, what you see is Paul especially bringing both Greek and Hebrew to bear. It's kind of an Old Testament and a New Testament. Once again, helping us remember that it's one people and one message. It's as I've been saying, the cause and effect of the gospel, in other words, because grace has appeared, peace has arrived. Indeed, it's the grace and peace of the gospel, the gospel which again is good news. And what do you do with news? Think about it. What do you do with news? You either believe it or you don't believe it. It's good news. It's not advice. Every other religion, whether it's a historic worldwide religion or even maybe your self-created religion, is advice. Do this, do that, don't do this. Yes, Christianity does have that in its midst, but 
fundamentally it is news. It is good news. And what do you do? Again, you believe it or you don't believe it. You respond to it or you don't respond to it. And if you believe it and you respond to it, you live differently in view of it. You know, the word gospel was not original with the the New Testament writers. It was a, a Greek word that was used to announce a military victory. They incorporated that to help communicate this announcement, this good news of what God has done in Christ. And if you were living in that day and time and it was announced that the king had conquered you, this other king or this other land, that, that would affect your life. And in a similar way, but in a much greater way, so also the gospel affects us. And what is the major effect of the gospel? What is the major effect of the good news? It's peace. Because grace has appeared, peace has arrived. Back in the late 1930s, the British Prime Minister was a man named Neville Chamberlain. And back in the fall of 1938, he met with the German leader Adolf Hitler and came together uh, to talk about what they were going to do about Czechoslovakia. And they met in Munich. And when Chamberlain came back to London, uh, this is what he said. My good friends, this is the second time there has come back from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. I believe Chamberlain said that at night right outside the entrance to the home and office of the British Prime Minister, 10 Downing Street. He announced peace for our time. And in view of that, why don't you just go home and sleep quietly? Well, less than a year after this agreement, there was continued aggression by Germany. Germany invaded Poland. And all of Europe is soon engulfed in what came to be known as the Second World War. Peace for our time? Not quite. In the 1930s, 1940s, that answer was most definitely no. But there is peace for our time, and we see it announced in this letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians, Ephesus was a wealthy port city at the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Paul, in the early 60s, was in house arrest in Rome. Paul, the Jew, writes to the Ephesians, mainly Gentiles and pagans. And if you would, look with me at chapter 1. He's got a prayer in verses 18 and 19 where he, he wants his reader to know the hope, the riches of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, he wants to demonstrate this great power to those who believe the news, the announcement. And in chapter 2, he provides two evidences of that power. In the first 10 verses, it's raising the dead to life. And in the next uh, 12 verses, which we'll be looking at today, making the two one. First, there's an emphasis on the individual 
response to the good news. And then second, the corporate, the church's response to the good news. Here is God's power to restore not only broken human life, but also broken human community. Join with me as I read verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, already killing, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. In Him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Now, looking at the structure of the text, here's a summary. In verses 11 through 12, who we once were. It's a portrait of an alienated humanity, separated, alienated from God, strangers. And notice the language, having no hope and without God. Paul does not dance around the status of someone who is outside of Christ. They have no hope and they are without God. So these first two verses, 11 and 12, it's who we once were. But then he moves on in verses 13 through 18 to what Jesus Christ has done. If the first two verses were a portrait of an alienated humanity, these next verses are a portrait of the peacemaking Christ who through the cross through that instrument of death and humiliation and shame, He made peace and He preached peace. But then in the last few verses, verses 19 through 22, here we see what we have now become. It's a portrait of God's new society. It's a portrait of the church. Here are citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's family, and God's temple in whom His Spirit dwells, as indeed His Spirit builds that temple as well. So here in this text, we see those three portraits, an alienated humanity, a peacemaking Christ, 
and God's new society, the church. And we see in our text that what Jesus has done is determined by who He is. And we saw that last week in Titus 2. What grace does is because of who grace is. And here, we have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, the great thing about the Scriptures is they give a lot of descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. Here, I want us to notice in verse 14. He Himself is our peace. Now, it would have been fine for the author just to say, He is our peace. Okay? But He chose to say, He Himself is our peace, to underline it, to bold it, to put it in italics, to highlight it. He Himself is our peace. In other words, Paul is wanting to communicate that Jesus Himself and no one else, no one else is our peace. Those of you that were with us a few years ago may remember um, a sermon series around Advent from Isaiah 9 on the fourfold name of King Jesus. And one of those names was He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And in one of the minor prophets, Micah, he speaks of a ruler coming from little Bethlehem. And he says this about this ruler coming from Bethlehem. He shall be their peace. Paul knows the Scriptures. He's writing Scripture. He knows what has been written in former days. He knows this declaration of the, the, the child who was born, the son who was given as being Prince of Peace. And he knows Micah's prophecy of the one coming from Bethlehem who would be their peace. And because He Himself is our peace, He can do something. Two things. He can make peace, as we will talk about more in a minute. And because He Himself is our peace, He can preach peace. And so you see in this description of who Jesus is are two things Jesus does. He makes peace and He preaches peace. Now we're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about the implications of this declaration that Jesus Christ is our peace. In other words, we're going to consider the so what of the reality that Jesus is our peace. Now the focus of our text has to do with the creation of one new man in Christ, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. Now in order for us to get there, I want us to think first about this and listen to this carefully. There can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people. And there can be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. Once again, there can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people. And there can be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. So if Jesus Christ is our peace, then I believe that we can see from our text and the rest of Scripture that at least three things are true. First, our relationship to God is restored. 
our relationship with God is restored. Uh, we see that in the text. Now, some things are hard to understand in, in uh, Scripture. Other things are not. Look at verse th- 13. We have been brought near. We have been reconciled, both of us, to God through the cross. Through Him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We are now citizens of the kingdom, members of the house, living stones built together. Here is the work of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, over to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Paul writes this beginning in chapter 1, verse 18. And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace peace by the blood of his cross. Robert Letham, a British theologian who indeed has preached from this pulpit a few years ago, says this in his book, The Work of Christ. By his propitiatory sacrifice, that is his work of exhausting God's wrath on the cross, Christ has brought us out of a state of enmity with God into friendship. The original fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God before the fall has been restored. We are now at peace with Him. Who is your greatest enemy? Have you ever thought about that? Who is your greatest enemy? Well, until someone comes to faith in Christ, God is that person's biggest enemy. But who is your biggest and greatest ally? Jesus, the one who makes peace between God and man, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Our biggest enemy when we are outside of Christ is God Himself. Our biggest ally, our biggest friend is Jesus Christ in what He does. Indeed, We are removed and brought out of a state of enmity. And we are brought into a friendship with God. That original fellowship that has been broken has been restored. Well, secondly, if Jesus Christ Himself is our peace, then not only is our relationship with God restored, but also our relationship to ourself is at rest. Now, where do we see that? You've got to back up to... Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not by works, so that no one can boast. We have been saved by faith. Well, those first 10 verses are all about salvation by grace through faith. And because of that, we're at rest because we are no longer exhausted because of having to work our way to God somehow. But God has come to us. Not only are we no longer exhausted, we are no longer weighed down by guilt. The guilt has been lifted. The guilt has been removed by Christ. As Horatio Spafford wrote 
in those two middle verses of it is well with my soul. My guilt has been lifted. So, I think it's fair to say that today many of us are exhausted and weighed down. I mean, life is exhausting. There is more to do than time to do it. There, there are things that weigh us down and rightly should weigh us down. You know, not all burdens need to be lifted. Some burdens need to be borne. But let me ask you this. Are you exhausted right now in your relationship to God? Are you weighed down? Do you feel when you consider your relationship to God that you are exhausted and weighed down? Well, if you've got those symptoms, here's the treatment. Turn to Christ. Turn to Him. Run to Him. That's where exhaustion gets replaced with rest. And that's where being weighed down with guilt and shame gets replaced with being weighed down with gratitude and thanksgiving and joy. Because you see, the work of Christ on the cross not only shows us who God is, but also who we are. John Stott writes this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. At the center of our passage is Jesus' work on the cross. The cross is offensive. Yes, we wear it around our necks. Yes, I believe it's right here behind me. But the cross in and of itself is offensive. It either hardens us or it humbles us. You either walk away from the cross or you stand still before the cross. Because you see, in, in front of the cross, we realize that we are so sinful that Jesus had to die. And therefore, the cross humbles us out of our pride. And yet, in front of the cross, we realize that we are also so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. And that assures us out of our fear. So, ask yourself this question as you consider that because of the work of Jesus on the cross, our relationship with ourself is at rest. Ask yourself, are you humbled by the gospel? Or rather, are you being hardened by the gospel? Or are you, um, are you being assured by the gospel? Always remember, Jesus had to die. But for those who trust Him, He is also glad to die. You see, the peace with God provides the peace of God. Because Jesus in this passage we see brings two gifts. Because in Christ you have this eternal peace with God and because of this you have the peace of God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the peace of of God. But in Philippians chapter 4 he writes, and the peace of God will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you hear the distinction? By faith you have the peace of God and you have peace with God. In the midst of troubles and trials, we have peace. Turn with me back to John's Gospel. John 14. John 14, verses 27. Here's Jesus saying this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because I'm giving you my peace. Turn over to John 16, verse 33, the last verse. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus leaves peace, he gives peace, and because of Jesus' He, you have peace. And did you hear in our New Testament reading, John 20? Three times Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. It must be important for Jesus to reassure His, those who believe in Him, that His peace is with them. Well, third, if Jesus Christ is our peace then we demonstrate and declare the reality of being in a restored relationship with God and being at rest with ourselves through our relationship with one another. Relationships that are once and for all reconciled and also in time are being reconciled. So here our relationship to one another in the church is reconciled. It is recreated. It is restored. This is the center of gravity of the passage. Making the two one. Creating in Himself one new man. Jesus' work destroys the dividing wall of hostility. He abolishes the law of commandments and ordinances. The ceremonial law that kept Jew and Gentile Separated. A good thing, that is the law, became that which caused man, Jewish man in particular, to feel superior and therefore to stumble. Interesting, Paul is, is once again saying one of the law's purposes is to show us our need for Christ. And here's the purpose of the cross, to restore the broken human being as well as the broken human community. Again, the cross is offensive. It either humbles you or it hardens you. It's not just to save, but to create one new people. A new people whose defining characteristic is they have both been washed by the blood of Jesus. K. Coles James um, a Virginia woman who rose to the ranks of state government and then served in a previous administration in federal government, she wrote, said this, quote, I don't care about the color of your skin, but whether or not you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. She's affirming that Christians are a band, as it were, of blood brothers and sisters. 
In his book, Love in Hard Places, D.A. Carson writes this, The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Because you see, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And I have to remind myself over and over again, it is hard to look down on someone when you are looking up at the cross. It is hard to look down on someone when you are looking up at the cross. And as I was working my way through this text this week and seeing that this relationship with God is, is restored, this relationship with self is at rest, and this relationship with one another is reconciled, I thought about that passage that you see almost every week in an email. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I think one of the reasons people don't welcome one another, and by the way, Grace and Peace is a church that is the exception that proves the rule. You guys do a great job in welcoming people, and may that continue to be the case. But the people that can welcome others are the people that have a taste of the welcome they have in Christ. Keep welcoming people as you have already done so the question, therefore, is not where are you from so much as it is where are you going. Uh, some of you have heard of Matthew Henry. He wrote a very famous commentary. He lived in the 1700s. It's an old commentary, but it's a favorite for many. I have to put on my glasses now to read it. It's so fine print. Well, Matthew Henry's father's name was Philip Henry. His father and mother were courting the story says, and they were dating, and unfortunately, Matthew's father, Philip, evidently was from the wrong side of the tracks. The girl he was dating, who was going to be Matthew Henry's mother, came from the right side of the tracks, the Society Hill section of the community. At one point, the parents of Matthew Henry's mother came to her and said, quote, This Philip Henry, who you're dating, we're concerned. We don't know where he's from. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what part of the city he's really from. We don't know where he's from. She looked at them and said, I don't know where he's from either, but I do know where he's going. Our church, grace and peace, who you are now and where you are going is so much greater than who you once were. And where you were from. May that always be the case. Where we are now and where we are going is much greater and much more important than where we have been. And where we come from. Because here at Grace and Peace you see the power of God on display. Our unity is not is not created by some kind of outward conformity but rather inward reality and over time 
that inward unity will become more and more externally visible. So the peace of the cross changes you in your relationship to God, yourself, and others. Grace and peace do not come from within us, but they rather come from the outside. And they come from a most unlikely source. Think about it. Where do grace and peace come from? From Rome? From London? From Washington? From the seats of power and influence? From Wall Street? From Silicon Valley? Uh, where do grace and peace come from? A most unlikely source. A poor baby. A homeless man. A man who was abandoned and killed. So just as grace appeared because Jesus appeared, so also peace arrived because Jesus arrived. Remember the announcement at the time of His birth? It's still being announced. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Well, who are the people with whom God is pleased? That is a very good question. Who is God pleased with? He's pleased with those who run to Jesus for refuge. Remember, there can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people and there will be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. And that peace is available only through Jesus. So are you at peace with God? You may be familiar with the statement of an early church father, Augustine, a 4th and 5th century church father. He said this, For thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart, until it comes to rest in thee. So is your heart restless today? Our restless hearts are put to rest by the appearance of grace and the arrival of peace in Jesus Christ. You see, these banners of truth up here, they point to a person he is the grace of God. He is the peace of God. Toward the end of his letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes these words, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. And indeed, there is great joy and peace in believing. May God be pleased to continue to show His grace to this church as she continues to believe. And may He be pleased to establish His peace within her walls as those whom He is gathering and growing continue to believe. Well, just a moment ago, we heard one of Augustine's most well-known statements. Let's now conclude with one of his lesser-known prayers. Let's pray. O oh, loving God, to turn away from You is to fall. To turn toward You is to rise. 
and to stand before You is to abide forever. Grant us, dear Lord, in our duties, Your help, in our uncertainties, Your guidance, in all our dangers, Your protection, and in our sorrows, Your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.